The Oslo Freedom Forum and the Nobel Peace Centers are partners for this event. Um, it is on the basis, uh, it is on this basis that I first thank the Nobel Peace Center for hosting this side event to the Oslo Freedom Forum and welcome you all to meet um, Elise Shafak. The theme of the Oslo Freedom Forum this year is Defending Democracies. In Norway, we take democracy for granted. The right for citizens to, um, to exercise power directly and to elect representatives to form a government. Democracy is generally considered to have originated in the city-states as classical Athens and the Roman Republic but they disappeared in the West in the late antiquity. However, the heritage of the Roman Empire was maintained in the Eastern Roman Empire, most notably in Constantinople, from where it was spread back to Western Europe in the Renaissance, which led to the Age of Enlightenment. Moreover, it is worth noting that Istanbul remained a multicultural, multi-religious and multi-ethnical city also during the Ottoman times. Unfortunately, the recent constitutional changes in Turkey severely undermined the democratic principles. Elis Safak is one of Turkey's most popular female novelists and an important voice from Turkey. Multiculturalism and cosmopolitanism is very difficult to say. Cosmopolitanism has constantly characterized both her life and her work. In the Huffington Post, she defends the cosmopolitan idea, ideal as follows. Instead of reducing ourselves to the binary opposition of identity politics, we need to do the exact opposite. Multiply our attachments and affiliations. So on this note... On behalf of the Nobel Peace Center and the Oslo Freedom Forum, um, I give the floor to Elif Shafak and to Morten Mixvoll, who has his own website on Turkish politics. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, There's um, really no lack of news coming out of Turkey uh, these days, and um, there's really not been a lack of news coming out of Turkey the last few years, uh, to say the least. So we can't really cover it all. We're here to get to know Elif Shafak a little bit better, but also get to know Turkey um, a little bit better. Um, there is, however, some uh, aspects that I can promise that we will delve a little bit into. Uh, the failed coup, uh, the war uh, between the, the state and the Golan movement was a, a part of that. Uh, and the struggles with, uh, with terrorism uh, that Turkey is going through. Um, but first, I, I would like to say I'm really glad to have Elif Shafak with us today uh, so we can learn uh, more about these topics uh, and delve into them. Um, I would like to start uh, by asking you uh, a little bit about you as a writer and how it has sh shaped your views. Um, a lot of your writing has kind of a genre of Istanbul literature. It's based in the city. You apparently or obviously uh, love the city very much. Um, very broad question. What is it about this city that inspires you to write? I, um, <clears throat> first of all, it's, it's wonderful to be here. I'm, I'm really looking forward to uh, hearing your questions, your comments, and turning this into a dialogue. I started writing fiction at a very early age. When I was eight years old, uh, I started writing short stories. But that's not because I wanted to, or I dreamed of becoming a, an established author someday. Uh, I, to be honest, I didn't know such a thing was possible. There were no such role models around me. Uh, and I didn't know you could devote dedicate your entire life to literature. Um, but I started writing, nevertheless, because I was a very lonely child. I was an only child. 
and I was raised by a single mother, a divorcee, a working mother, and I think that left a big impact on me. And books were my best friends, and I thought my life was terribly boring, and I thought Storyland was much more colorful. So I, I constantly went to Storyland as, as often as I could. I stayed there. That's how I started writing. The, the, the wish to become an established author came to me in my 20s, early 20s. <laughs> but the need to write came to me much earlier in my childhood. So there is that continuity in my life. Um, I've always connected to the world through books through words and through stories and through imagination. That said, I am a nomad. I was born in Strasbourg. I came to Turkey, Ankara, with my mother. Uh, I was also raised by my grandmother, two very different women. By the time I was 10 years old, my mother became a diplomat. She and I traveled a lot. We went to Jordan, Germany, Cologne, then back to Ankara. Then I came to Istanbul in my early 20s. I fell in love with the city. Istanbul always played an important role in my writing. Um, but I also felt very suffocated sometimes there. And I went to Boston, Michigan, Arizona, back to Istanbul, and then to London. So when you look at the pattern, it's a quite nomadic life. I am an Istanbulite. I'm very attached to Istanbul. I love the city. I love its history. I love <coughs> discovering, and I think there's a big difference. When you are born and raised in Istanbul, uh, maybe you lose your curiosity a little bit. When you're an outsider, you become a bit more curious. You want to discover. Um, you, you ask questions about what does that mean? What, what, what's written there? And let us not forget that Turkey is a country of collective amnesia. Yeah, we have uh, our relationship with the past is broken, full of ruptures. So uh, I've written extensively about Istanbul, but I've always thought of her as a she city. For me, Istanbul is a city with a feminine energy, uh, and this is very important to me. Even though streets belong to men, mostly, public squares belong to men, I think the soul of the city is very, very feminine. And Istanbul is the kind of city that you can't just leave behind. You carry her with you wherever you go. Well, I can certainly agree to that as a very outsider uh, to, to that. Um, you have also said that you um, are suffocated there, mm -hmm. uh, that uh, the city kind of haunts you wherever you go. Uh, is that the, the other part of that love? Is that... Yeah. a necessary part of that love, or is it something to do with yeah. uh, developments? I think Turkey, as you know, as all of you know, is a very polarized country. And it is a country with collectivistic identities, clashing collectivistic identities. And there's always this duality of us versus them. So if you talk to people who are pro-government, they have an us versus them. If you talk to pe people who are against the government, they have an us versus them, and so on and on and on. Okay. There are almost imaginary tribes in our minds. And so the most difficult thing to be in Turkey is just to be an individual. I only want to be an individual. No collectivistic identity, no tribes. My personal attachment to the city, to the culture, to its history is a very personal thing, is a very individualistic thing. And this might seem like a tiny detail, but it's very difficult to, to defend in Turkey because it's always about collectivities. But I think we need to highlight individualism. Art needs individuality. Literature needs individuality. So to me, that emphasis is very important. Just, just to be myself, you know? Yeah. To be, on a broader sense, in the, the political uh, direction the world seems to be going now, uh, my sense is that that um, this collectivism is yeah. is uh, getting uh, getting increasingly uh, difficult. difficult, and it it broadens. And uh, I love football. Yeah, I, I'm I'm a member of a supporters club. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but increasingly, political parties, political stances, yeah. kind of take the same yeah. uh, kind of effect as a as a as a supporters club for football sure. uh, and and in some instances too there's hooliganism, 
hooliganism in, in, involved. Yeah. Um, how are you, yeah. uh, what, what do you think about that development? And yeah. we'll go a little bit back to... Sure. I think, um, and you're so right, it's everywhere, east and west, but maybe more concentrated in some countries. Yeah. There is a tendency to simplify things. All extremist ideologies have this in common, whether it's Islamic fanaticism, whether it's ultranationalism in, in, in Turkey or in Europe, in the Netherlands, you know, anything that's extremist has the same tendency. Extremists don't like multiplicity. They don't know how to deal with multiplicity. They don't know how to deal with pluralism. Okay? Mm. So they want to reduce us to one single category, one single identity. From the eyes of a fanatic um, fundamentalist, they say, are you a Muslim? You can only be a Muslim, according to their definition of, of Islam. Or if it's, a, if it's a racist, they say, you just be what I describe you as. Um, and they always need an us, they always need a them, this distinction between us versus them. What I'm saying is, if we believe in literature, if we believe in art, if we believe in freedom, we have to do the exact opposite of what they're saying. Multiplicity is beautiful. Diversity is a treasure. Cosmopolitanism is something to be cherished and to be appreciated. And there's multiplicity inside us. As human beings, we are made of water. Our main element is water. We are fluid, you know? Mm. So, yes, I am an Istanbulite, but there are, there, I'm attached to the Balkans as well. You know, when I look at my family, where I, lots, of, lots of family histories, I am very attached to the Aegean. I'm very attached to the Mediterranean. There are lots of elements in my soul from the, from the entire Middle East. And I am a European by choice, I'm a European because of the, of the values that I share and I uphold. I have become a Londoner over the years, and I would like to believe that I'm a world citizen and hopefully a global soul. So why can't I have multiple belongings instead of re being reduced to one single thing? And that's what I resist. And in my art, in my work, I always try to highlight that multiplicity. I think we need democracy not only for societies, but for ourselves. There's inner democracy. All of us is composed of different selves, different voices. But do we allow those voices to come to the surface, or do we suppress those voices because we have only one identity that we present to others? So, to me, inner democracy is also important. I, uh, yes, I, I th see myself as someone who wholeheartedly believes in, in the beauty of diversity. And if I, if I may add this, I think in this life, if we're ever going to learn anything, we're, we're going to learn it from people who are different from us. Mm. You know? So, someone who is exactly like me, who speaks like me, who votes like me, who talks like me, whatever, is just an echo of my voice. If we only read people who we agree with, then that means we're not reading. If we are only surrounded with people who are exactly like us, that's a very dangerous thing. I'm, I'm very critical of these mental ghettos, cultural ghettos. So in my work, I always try to bridge people from different backgrounds. And in Turkey, this is a very difficult thing to do because we are an angry society, we are a divided society, and we have become so divided into those ghettos that people don't share bread together anymore. I find that very unhealthy for a country. Yeah, that really bridges over to some of the topics that uh, are discussed on the Oslo Freedom Forum this year, and the topic is uh, defending democracy. And, and at the press conference yesterday, several of, of the attendants there said that one of the keys to defending democracy is to have a democratic populace. Mm. You need people that mm. want democracy. Mm. And, and if you don't have people that want democracy, if you don't have people that want that individuality, mm. you don't get it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. But in your latest book, uh, The Daughters of Eve, mm -hmm. um, you portray um, modern-day Istanbul. Mm -hmm. And uh, from what I understand, uh, the struggles of modern-day uh, Muslim women in Istanbul. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, that book and that project? Mm -hmm. 
what it means. Um, my, my most recent book, Three Daughters of Eve, takes place in, in Istanbul and also Oxford, Oxford University. Um, and uh, at some point I wanted to call the book The Last Supper of the Turkish Bourgeoisie <laughs> because it takes place in the course of a dinner, of a supper, with starters, the main course, desserts. With flashbacks, we go back to Oxford University. And in Oxford, I talk about three young women. All of them come from Muslim backgrounds, but their relationship to their identity is completely different. Yeah? So there's Shirin, who is the child of uh, exiled parents, parents who had to flee Iran, who had to run away from Islamic fanaticism and fundamentalism. And Shirin is very critical of all religions, but in particular she is very critical of Islam because of the lack of gender equality and the mistreatment of women that she observes. The second girl is called Mona. She is Egyptian-American. She wears a headscarf. She is sincerely practicing and she complains about Islamophobia because this is something she experiences almost on a daily basis. And then the third girl is Peri and she's Turkish, and she has lots of questions about everything and anything. So together, they call themselves jokingly the sinner, the believer, and the confused. And this is a book that much, very much focuses on the, on the confused and the confusions of our times. And I think in general, we Turks are very confused. Maybe it's understandable, given our geographical location, you know, we are in between east, west, but confusion can be a good thing. In my book, that's what one of the messages, maybe that's one of the things that I wanted to open up. Confusion is not necessarily a bad thing. Confusion can be a sign of a thinking mind. It's okay to have questions and not as many answers. That is perfectly healthy. But Peri's problem in the book, just like Turkey's problem, she sees confusion as a burden, as something to get rid of. She sees diversity as, as a problem, and, and that doesn't make her happy. So I, I guess what I'm trying to say is, I deliberately wanted to have women characters at the center of my book. I think in today's Muslim world in, the gen in general, women are asking the most important questions. And this is not a coincidence, because when societies go backwards, when societies tumble into populism, authoritarianism or fundamentalism, we women have more to lose than men. For us, it is much more vital and urgent. We need to talk. The problem is, even though we're talking, we're talking in the private space. There are, I know many women, who, young women, who talk in their homes, over dinners, over coffee, coffees, but we need to bring their voices into the public space. And that is when women become very timid in countries like Turkey, because we need to accept this Turkey is a very patriarchal country, very sexist and homophobic as well. So it's not easy for women to come into the public space. And this, this is an important cause for me, to bring more voices of women from the private space into the public space and diversify that public discourse. Yeah. And there's, there's an expression that, that you've coined that you've called Turkey the society of the Baba, yeah. uh, the society of the father, the patriarch. Yeah. Uh, and that, that is not confusion, that's order. And yeah. you want more confusion. I want more confusion yeah. because the Baba order, I find it very problematic. Maybe because I myself did not grow up with my father. I uh, grew up without seeing my father. In some ways, of course, it maybe it hurt me, but in other ways, it made me very independent. So there are pluses and minuses when I look at my own personal history. But but more importantly, of course, I, I became more aware of this emphasis on Baba at an early age. And I think in Turkey, we're always looking up at a so-called strong man to guide us, to tell us what to do. And we have internalized uh, that discipline, fear so much not only in politics, but for sure in politics, but in addition to that, in football, at school, in our daily lives, we're always looking for a Baba figure. Um, and I don't find that democratic. I think democracy 
is only possible with diversity and only possible not top down but bottom up you know so yeah. with it has to be the other way around so for me civil society is very important yeah and with the whole populace included mm. um i would like to talk to you about the developments of turkey and how it has developed over the mm -hmm. the 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 la latest like 14 15 years mm -hmm. uh, under the the current government because mm -hmm. uh, 10 years ago Erdogan was viewed as uh, a very hopeful figure mm -hmm. uh, uh, a beacon of hope for uh, democracies in the middle east mm -hmm. and, and the muslim world and mm -hmm. and the eu turkey relations were very good and today it couldn't be more uh, opposite uh, than that um You have written earlier that you had positive expectations of mm -hmm. Erdogan. Uh, can you talk a little bit about those and how they changed <laughs> and maybe what changed them? I didn't say I had positive expectations of Erdogan. What I said oh. was, <laughs> <laughs> because there's, there's, a, there's a difference there. What I said was uh, the AKP has been in power for 14 years, more than 14 years. And it has gone through a long journey. Today, that party is no more. We have to be realistic. Today, it's one man, mm. it's a monopoly of power, something else. But of course, it didn't happen Im immediately. It happened throughout the years. At the beginning, like 14 years ago, 15 years ago, they came to power, which are much more um, reformist rhetoric. <coughs> oh, you might say, You know, some people never believe that rhetoric. That's another question. What I'm analyzing right now is their narrative was mm. pro-EU, pro-reform, pro-making a new constitution, a more inclusivist constitution. Uh, at the time, there were attempts over the years, there were attempts, for instance, to mend the relations with Armenia, with Armenians, to mend relations with Kurds, Kurdish reconciliation, etc. I've always been a big defender of Turkey's EU membership. Um, because I was always worried that if we can't go on this journey, this country is going to become more and more inward-looking, enclosed and isolationists. So at the time, they were more pro-EU. That has changed dramatically over the years. What happened over the years is this party became more and more inward-looking, more and more intolerant, more and more authoritarian. Um, there, there are some turning points in, in that long journey. Uh, we can talk about those turning points. One of the turning points was the collapse of the relations with EU. And I have always been very critical of the AKP for failing to fulfill EU criteria in Turkey. Why? Because we needed those criteria in order to improve our democracy. As women, we needed those criteria. For minorities, we needed that, those criteria. For rule of law, we needed those criteria. So when they started abandoning you know, fu the fulfillment of the EU criteria, that was a big turning point. And I'm very critical. I've always been very critical of that. But at the same time, I've also been very critical of populist politicians in Europe especially populist politicians in France at the time, such as Sarkozy, who have used Turkey as a fear card in their own electoral campaigns. What they did was very short-sighted. You will remember, around 2004-2005, there was almost a historical moment when it seemed possible that Turkey was going to become an EU member. There was a very high percentage of support inside Turkey, and there were more positive um, developments outside of Turkey. In, in their, I'm talking about their relationship. And that moment was lost. So what happened ever since then, the more Turkey became detached from Europe, the more this played into the hands of isolationists. Mm. And who are the isolationists? The Islamists, the nationalists, and people who benefit from authoritarianism. What I'm trying to say is isolationism is not a good thing. It doesn't help countries, and it didn't help Turkey either. So I'm very sad that a country that once upon was so eager to become an EU member is today, after 14 years, talking about joining the Shanghai Pact. Yeah, this is the rhetoric of now of many pro-government papers, when you read them, they're talking about um, becoming a member of the Shanghai Pact with Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, and China, and Russia. 
and surely that's the right place to be if you don't care about freedom of speech. But I personally don't want my motherland to go in that direction, you know? Uh, I'm not saying that everything about Europe is a bed of roses, but I would much rather that Turkey stays connected to Europe. Uh, we have shared values and we do not deviate from liberal, pluralistic democracy. So certainly I, I will, even though it is, um, it is a, it's a dream that nobody believes in anymore, I will continue to support Turkey's EU membership because we need to keep this hope alive. Yeah. Um, in late 2015, you said uh, that you were disappointed of the EU's silence on Turkey, and that was in the aftermath of the, the refugee uh, yeah. deal and, and, and what concessions the EU made to, to Turkey then. And exactly one year later, you said that um, don't push Turkey away. Uh, these statements kind of, they mark the, some of the milestones in the EU-Turkey relations yes. the last, last couple of years But because yeah. uh, the EU wanted Turkey to handle their refugee problem, yeah. so they turned a blind eye to some of the, the human rights abuses uh, that happened there. And now you have this resurgence of, of anti-Turkish sentiments in, in Europe, uh, internally in some countries, uh, Um, partly because of the situation in the Netherlands uh, earlier this year. Uh, so now you have the, the possibility of EU yeah. pushing them away. But yeah. you say that there's still a hope. Is there something the EU can do? I um, think, I think um, all of us, we have a responsibility to talk in a more nuanced way. And this has become so difficult because we live in the age of populism. We live in the age of extremism. When... Um, Many people tend to make generalizations very easily and it's very crucial that we remind people outside of Turkey that Turkey is not a monolithic whole. Turkey is not only composed of one person or one party or one ideology. Turkey is an incredibly complicated, incredibly multi-layered country with a very rich history, with a very dynamic civil society. So there are many Democrats, liberals, progressives in Turkey. We might not hear their voices, but they exist. There are women, and Turkish, Kurdish, Alevi women, they are incredibly vocal, visible in all areas of life, in media, in academia, in, in, in medicine, advertisement, business. But there's one area in which women are almost non-existent, and that's politics. Politics is very male-dominated, yeah, and that needs to change. But what I'm trying to say is when you look at women, when you look at young people in Turkey, when you look at students, minorities, ethnic minorities, cultural minorities, sexual minorities, you will be full of optimism because there are such beautiful people despite the circumstances who are globally connected and they are there. So Turkey's government and the entire country are not one and the same thing. We sh can be critical of the government. In my opinion, we should be, especially with uh, regards to freedom of speech, media uh, oppression, lots of issues we need to be talking about seriously. But let's make a distinction. We can be critical of Turkey's politicians, but at the same time embrace the Turkish people. And this is where Europe, EU, Brussels has, is, has been making a big mistake. You know, over I'm talking about in the past. Not, mm. not necessarily today. It's very important to give a positive message to the people, connect with the people. I have been working actively with the English PAN and with several women's organizations and LGBT organizations uh, and, and s several other organizations to, to just, just to keep the communication alive. Uh, what these people are doing. I'm, I'm not saying I'm doing it, but I, I like to support in my own little way these organizations because it's important that uh, Norwegian writers stay connected to Turkish writers. Norwegian women stay connected to Turkish women. Norwegian students stay connected to Turkish students, etc. We should not isolate the people. We should not push away the people. But at the same time, we can be critical of the politics and the politicians, and in my opinion, we must. So that's where I make a distinction. Yeah. Uh, you were... Um, <coughs> you felt this uh, kind of authoritarian uh, 
turn for the, the Turkish government quite early, mm. uh, one year before The Economist wrote their stellar review of, of Erdogan uh, mm. 10 years ago. Um, because in your book, uh, The Bastard of Istanbul, one of the characters uh, said something that landed you in, in then Prime Minister Erdogan's spotlight. Mm. Can you elaborate on what happened there? Yeah, one of my earlier books, um, some of you might be familiar with, it's uh, it's called The Bastard of Istanbul. In Turkish it's called Baba ve Piç. Um, and to be honest, maybe as a footnote I have to tell you this, I have been writing in English for the last 15 years now. Yeah, I think it's been 15. Um, and, and maybe uh, writing in another language gave me a little bit of extra space or, or a feeling of extra freedom. May, because when sometimes we become too worried as, as writers, if I say this, what will people think? If I do that, what will people think? And you can't write. You have to be free in your imagination. So somehow going back into my cocoon, writing in my own loneliness and writing in another language, just leaving a, a little bit of cognitive distance between where I come from and what I'm writing about helped. And so uh, this book was written in English, it was translated into Turkish, then I took the Turkish translation and I rewrote it, and that's what I've been doing for years. And over time I realized there are things I find much easier to say in English, for instance humor, irony, satire is much easier in English, but if there's melancholy, if there's sorrow, if there's longing, I find it much easier to express that in Turkish. And maybe that's a, that's a cultural difference as well. Um, but anyhow, this, this is a book that focuses on, the, on two families, a Turkish family and an Armenian-American family. And it tells the story through the eyes of women, generations of women, grandmothers, daughters and granddaughters. Um, and I wanted to write a constructive book that can talk about the past, both the beauties and the atrocities of the past, and I wanted to be able to say, we need to talk about it. We need to talk about 1915. We need to talk about what happened. We need to grieve together, not to be stuck in the past, but hopefully to, to build a better future. But we can't pretend as if nothing happened. And memory is a responsibility. Um, as I mentioned, we are a society of collective amnesia. So fast we, we forget. Like two years ago, Russia was regarded as the enemy, and this then Russia became the best friend. Nobody knows if Russia's what, what we're going to think about Russia next year. Moods change very quickly in Turkey, but it's important to have a memory as well for a nation to to learn from its mistakes. So uh, after the book was published, I was sued. I was put on trial for insulting Turkishness under Article 301, but nobody knows what insulting Turkishness means. It's, uh, it's very vague, that's why it's very open to misinterpretation. And for the first time, a work of fiction was put on trial. As a result, my Turkish lawyer had to defend my Armenian fictional characters in the courtroom. And the whole thing was very, very surreal. And to me, it was very unnerving, because at the time I was also pregnant. Um, so, w on the one hand, I experienced it as a very difficult or, or upsetting time. On the other hand, I remember it as a, as a very positive time as well. Why? Because, because the feedback from readers was amazing. And it taught me, the whole experience, the importance of readership. I've never been an elite writer. I've always been connected with the readers in Turkey and in other countries as well. So, especially women. Women read more fiction than men. And when, when a woman in Turkey likes a book, she makes her boyfriend read that book, her husband read that book. So I have many male readers who come to me and they say, I wasn't going to read your books, but my wife talked so much about it, so I was curious. And that's how the journey starts. So um, I owe a big, big gratitude to women readers of all backgrounds who kept me sane during that difficult time. Yeah, so you kind of, uh, this, this law about insulting Turkishness, that's something that has been in the law yes. since the Republic uh, yeah. was, was, uh, was started. Uh, but it hasn't been used a lot 
and in your case was the first uh, fiction. fiction. Yeah. Now it's used very much, yeah. uh, not as much as as the other article uh, uh, considering uh, in insulting the president. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. it was kind of a warning uh, yeah. of what was to come. Yeah. Uh, that 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 story. Uh, I think it's about two thousand cases after the the failed coup. So for yeah. almost yeah, a year more now. More than 2,000 cases about uh, yeah. the president, yes. Yeah. Not insulting Turkish news, but insulting yeah. president cases. Yeah, yeah true. Yeah. I, uh, may I share this with you? W um, when I first moved to, to England, um, of course, one of the best-known writers is Hilary Mantel. And uh, she had given an interview in a British newspaper, and she said very critical things about monarchy and... Uh, the monarchs in, in, in Britain, and I was, I was shocked. I, I was worried that she was going to be put on trial, you know, yeah. for insulting Britishness, because this is, a, <laughs> this is a very core British institution, you know? We're talking about the royalty with a long history, um, and nothing happened. And I can give you thousands of examples. Yes, some people were upset at her, some people were agreed with her, some people disagreed, but that's about it. I have read so many works written by British writers criticizing their history, criticizing, you know, uh, making fun of things, humor. This is what we've lost in Turkey. There are children's programs when you watch British TV, and I'm, please don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that you know, one side is perfect, the other side is not. But just examples. When you watch TV, when people can make fun of themselves, when they can make fun of their kings and their queens, I can't imagine a Turkish program making fun of a sultan, in, in Ot an Ottoman sultan. What we have lost is not only our ability to tolerate criticism, that we have definitely lost, but our also our ability to laugh Humor has been gone in Turkey, and this is a very bad sign. I think when societies lose humor, that is when they become more authoritarian. That is when they become more intolerant. So no wonder today we have not only columnists and journalists in prison, we also have cartoonists in prison, <coughs> such as Musa Kart. He is the leading cartoonist of Jumriyet newspaper, and I can go on with, with a long list of names who have been in prison, this, this is not fair, you know, this is not acceptable. What I'm trying to highlight is we have become very intolerant and we, are, we have lost our sense of lightness and humor and we have become a very unhappy nation of unhappy people. In um, 2013, there was these huge demonstrations around the country, yeah. uh, approximately <coughs> 7 million, it said that, uh, that uh, were in these demonstrations, mm -hmm. and in those demonstrations, they used a lot of humor, and yes. in the aftermath, they used a lot of humor. Yes. Uh, the penguin is now the symbol of TV stations not showing the news, yeah. because CNN Turk showed a penguin documentary instead of the, the riots. Yeah. Uh, so there's been some resurgence of, of humor, absolutely. but I'm struck down. Absolutely, I'm not saying that humor is completely gone. No. We always had black humor, especially mm. when you read the graffiti, mm. uh, but the graffiti are anonymous. Yeah. You know, when you put your name to, um, to a piece of humor, it becomes more difficult. Some of those um, cartoon uh, comics, magazines, which, which we have a long tradition of, by the way. Once upon a time, we had the American Mad, the Russian Crocodile and Crocodile, and, and the Turkish Gürgür in 1970s. It was fascinating, it was so important as, a, as black political humor. Once upon a time in Turkey, you could make fun of politicians on TV. You know, we had these impersonations, making fun of the opposition, making fun of the government. It was possible. It has become very difficult to do that. Those, many of those magazines are shutting down or are finding it more and more difficult, and they are being sued. Mm. You know, cartoonists in particular are being sued because their cartoons, uh, caricatures, sorry, are being found offensive. We have, we are, we have become easily offended. We are, we are constantly, somebody is getting offended. Under these circumstances, it's very difficult to be an artist. It's very difficult to be a poet or a cartoonist for that matter. Uh, is it possible to understand why it became that way? Because looking from the outside, Turkey is kind of at siege. 
there's been multiple terror attacks. There have yeah. been the Phil coup last summer, which I would yeah. like to answer, ask a, ask a few questions about later. But there's there's been these multiple attacks on Turkey that are real, and then you have all the perceived attacks. Uh, you've been mentioned as a part of the international literature lobby, trying to. Uh, uh, Working for Western powers is the accusation. There's the interest rate lobby that uh, is a group of international uh, countries working to destroy the Turkish yeah. economy. There's I so many. I think, but we need to separate all <laughs> yeah. these. These are yeah. such big questions. Um, there is no doubt that Turkey exists in a very difficult region. Yeah, when you look at Turkey's geographical location, when you look at our neighbors. Uh, those neighbors are not Norway, Denmark, Finland, and Sweden. Those, those neighbors are Iran, Iraq, Syria, Russia. We're talking about a very turbulent region, and we're talking about a liquid world where everything can change very fast. And there is no doubt that what has been happening beyond the borders of Turkey has affected Turkey, but also what is happening in Turkey can affect what will happen beyond the borders. So we're living in a world in which domestic politics and international politics the, the are affecting each other more than, more than ever before. So in that regard, Turkey's, as a country, Turkey's job is not easy. The region itself is not an easy region. Um, but at the same time, unfortunately, I find nationalism very dangerous. I'm, I'm not, ne I've never been a fan of nationalism. And we have this nationalistic paranoia that everybody wants to destroy us. My generation, we grew up, I, I remember the riddles, the songs we were singing. Some of you will remember, you know, we were singing one, two, three. This is how we learned how to, how to count. Oh, the Greeks are horrible. Five, six, seven, the Bulgarians are even worse. Eight, nine, ten. Russians want to destroy us. Eleven, twelve, the Arabs want to stab us in the back. And there's no one left. You know, you name everyone around you. And so the ideology was the only friend of a Turk is another Turk. This is what they taught us. And I'm saying this is so dangerous. Why should it be like this? You know, why, why can't we have a more, more embracing <coughs> approach, more global approach? So my worry is that rhetoric is coming, coming back. Um, however, it's, it's much darker today. Things got worse and worse and worse because whoever dares to speak critically is immediately labeled as a traitor, is immediately attached a label, and then it's, it's so dire. In a rule of law, in a, in a proper democracy, everybody is regarded as innocent until you are proven to be guilty. In Turkey, it's the exact opposite. Once they put a label on you, you are guilty and you have to prove you are an innocent. How do you do that? You know? So what we've lost is rule of law, separation of powers, checks and balances. And because of our nationalistic paranoia that everybody wants to destroy us, some people, the moment you speak critically, some people immediately say, ah, she's saying this because she's the pawn of British imperialistic powers. Or he's saying that because he's the, he's the instrument of Western powers. So this, this is very suffocating for, for writers. This makes it very difficult to speak up. A nation cannot make progress if there's no criticism, if there's no self-criticism. Um, in short, what I'm trying to say is, I think the biggest mistake made in Turkey, and I said this in a couple of different places, is to confuse democracy with majoritarianism. These are different things. For majoritarianism to, uh, sorry, for democracy to exist, we need rule of law, definitely checks and balances, definitely um, independent media, and independent academia, and women's rights, and LGBT rights, and human rights. Together with these components, you have a democracy. We don't have these in Turkey. What we have is only the ballot box. Mm -hmm. The ballot box in itself doesn't make it a democracy. It only makes it either a majoritarianism or worse, authoritarianism. Yeah, and th this is uh, kind of accelerated, this development, uh, especially the last year. Uh, the attempted coup um, happening in July last summer. Um, <coughs> I had uh, just landed in, in Istanbul that night. I, I crossed the second Bosporus Bridge 20 minutes you, before. You landed it. that night? Yeah, I, wow. I crossed the bridge uh, 20 minutes before yeah. it closed. So <laughs> I, I observated the, the 
the coup from a hotel room in, in Shishli in, in Istanbul. Uh, and it was unnerving to watch. I've read an article that you've written that you watched it with your mother because she had just arrived in, in England. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about what yeah. went through your head when yeah. you saw these pictures? Yeah, we were in England. My mother had just, just visited. I, I wrote an article for, for The New Yorker about it. Um, and of course, all night long, you know, worried, scared, what's happening. Um, but but this, is a, this is a sentiment that I believe millions of people shared. So there is no doubt in my, in my mind that the coup attempt was wrong. Uh, it was shocking. It was bloody. More than 200 people died. And it made everything worse. It made everything worse. And in my opinion, in general, Turkey's Democrats and liberals, progressives, do not want another military takeover. This is a country, let us not forget, that has suffered from three military takeovers, 1960, 1971, 1980. Each one was worse than the one before in terms of human rights violations. So the way I see it, that is not a solution. That is not the right way at all. And it made everything worse. So I criticized the coup from the very beginning. But I also criticized the purge. That is also wrong, because so many people have been lumped together in the same basket. Thousands and thousands of people lost their jobs. Uh, Amnesty International just issued their report. A yep. hundred thousand people have lost their jobs. Now, when I say lost their jobs, we have to understand this. It's not like these people can go and find a job elsewhere. Thousands of academics have been sacked. They cannot find a job in another university because they have been stigmatized. So it means thousands of families have been affected. On top of that, we have uh, 153 journalists, last time I, I checked the numbers, in, in prison. Um, we have so many media outlets shut down. And Turkey became the world's biggest jailer in journalists. It, the crackdown, particularly on intellectuals, has been very severe. So, of course, let's be critical of the coup and, you know, it, the whole thing. Uh, I'm not a big fan of the government, as you can tell. Yeah. But I will always respect democracy and democratic elections. I, I, that is my principle. So... What the coup, what the putschists are doing is try to get the power in a very sinister, in a very dark way. That I can't have any sympathy for that. However, what the government is doing with the purge, and then we need to talk about the referendum as well, yeah. uh, this is also wrong. We, as you know, we had a referendum, and it, it wasn't a fair, it wasn't a balanced referendum. Uh, it's, it's not like two sides of the referendum were given equal voice. They were not. All the state's resources, all the media outlets were devoted to one side of the campaign. And that was the yes side of the campaign. Anyone who dared to say no was again labeled, stigmatized. Some people lost their jobs. Um, so the imbalance was very, very big. And on the day of the referendum, all of a sudden, the electoral board comes forward and says, I'm, you know what, I'm changing the rules. Yeah. From now on, I'm going to count the unofficially stamped ballots. And guess what? All of those unofficially stamped ballots are yes votes. So the whole thing cast a big shadow on the legitimacy of the, of the referendum. And I think many people felt very, very depressed, at least people who wanted a better democracy. In a nutshell, what I'm trying to say is, I don't want military takeovers. I don't want civilian authoritarianism either. What I want is a proper pluralistic liberal democracy. But in Turkey, it's become very difficult. If you criticize both, you can't, as if you have to take sides. Why should we take sides? I think we should stick to, the defend, to defending democracy and nothing, nothing else. We will soon open up the floor for a few short questions. But as an example of, of that, the HDP, a party mm -hmm. that has uh, undergone a severe uh, repression from the government, mm -hmm. there's multiple of the, uh, members of parliament uh, that has been arrested uh, uh, the last year. Mm -hmm. Even they, on the night of the coup, uh, denounced it. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, there was before a... Before any foreign government did, before there, there other a, parties did. There was a unity. So many people you know, from different political parties came together. Interestingly, ironically, Turkey's Democrats stood by the government against yeah. the putschists. Yeah. But those Democrats were the first to be punished by the, by the government. Yeah. 
And as you know, I mean, I don't want to go into details because there, this is, there's such a long list of writers and journalists. These people have nothing to do with violence. This, why are these people in prison? They don't even know what they're being accused of. They're not allowed to see their families. They're not allowed to read even their own books. And all of that is, is uh, in my opinion, unacceptable. Yeah, and the, the political unity you talked about. I was in Taksim Square a few days after the, the coup, and there was this demonstration between the CHP, the yes. center-left yeah. party, and the AKP. It was the first time in probably the republic's history that yeah. the, the majoritarian yeah. party and the yeah. biggest opposition party yeah. held a rally together. Yeah. There yeah. was a optimism in Turkey yeah, but it didn't in those last, days. Yeah, no, it lasted a couple of weeks. Yeah, maybe. it didn't last, unfortunately, too long. But coming back to your question about HTP, I think uh, you will remember in the previous elections uh, after June, it, it was very interesting that that momentum, for the first time, a regional party, because HTP was mostly yeah. regarded as a, mostly as a regional or ethnic, the Kurdish-affiliated party, became a national party. And um, I don't want to go into details for people who are not that familiar with Turkish politics, but what was interesting was they came forward with a very progressive party program that gave voice to women's rights. For the first time, we had openly gay candidates running for politics, uh, and there was 50-50 gender equality within HDP. And for the first time, they were able to get votes from the Turks uh, living in the western side of the country as well. So they, they transcended those ethnic boundaries. That moment was also lost. And as you know, uh, the leaders of HDP are today in prison. I find that unacceptable, uh, undemocratic as well, the, the way they have been put in prison. So, so the crackdown on the society, on Turkish civil society, has been going on in, in many ways. And I don't think this is going to make anyone happy. What we are seeing in Turkey today is a complete monopoly, monopolization of power. Personally, I don't want anyone in Turkey to have too much power. Mm. We're all human beings. None of us should have too much power. We need checks and balances. As human beings, we need other voices to, to balance us and counterbalance us. We have lost those checks and balances. So it's the monopoly of power that I find very, very dangerous. And that's the first thing a political scientist would see if he encountered Turkey for the first time is we need more power sharing. Yeah, and sure. we'll, we'll have a little bit of power sharing here. I'm going to give the floor uh, to uh, a couple of questions. You have the gentleman on the second row here. There's a microphone on the way. Yeah. Hi, my name is Sarjan. I'm very happy that you are here. And I was waiting for this day actually for maybe two weeks. Uh, so it's very beautiful. And um, I'd like to actually start with a small uh, maybe possible misunderstanding for the foreigner um, guest here because when you quickly actually covered the humor magazine, Gurgur and the others, mm -hmm. and then you were comp comparing the um, availability of humor in Turkish society, I think, I mean, in recently, especially in the last 20 years, there are, there's been more uh, like magazines, also like Penguin and uh, Uykusuz that you know them. So, and they sell like, I think at least roughly like 300,000 copies and that's uh, kind of also their ratio wise, I think it's very high. So also, I mean, not to even mention the social media and then this Turkish shoot in the humor, it's everywhere and it's even growing. So just, I wanted to like firstly but prevent can this can misunderstanding. I, can I but sorry, I mean, let's not talk about it. that's not very important. But I think there's a, there's a, there's a, there's a misunderstanding. Yeah. I didn't say we have lost all humor, of course not. We're a society, even now. No, I didn't say that you lost. I mean, yeah, you may, uh, but but political humor became more difficult to do in Turkey. No, because, because the politicians are already doing that, so there is no need <laughs> for that. Do you have because the question? So I have because my people real can be sued for yeah. their cartoons. Okay, yeah, I know. Yeah, you all yeah. know that. So my real question is actually like a lot of things that you say is. Uh, I'm also like I read your other uh, books as well, which are like um, your actually compilation of your um, articles from the newspapers. I don't find them very original, but the thing really about you, that uh, that's why I'm like the big fan of you, is, uh, and I think that you are, uh, you have the strongest expression skills after Yashar Kemal, who was the best of Turkish Republic history. So I'm not going to ask you how you do it. I know you have to work hard. And, but uh, what do you think? Because your actually um, fiction writing career is actually quite short still. It's used, you published your first book in, novel in 2009, so it's been only like eight years. So what do you think is missing with your career 
that keeps you away from Nobel uh, Literature Prize. <laughs> so it's the hardest question <laughs> of today. So I thank you. I appreciate your, your, your question. I really appreciate your, your comments. Uh, Yashar Kemal is, is a writer for, for whom I have a lot of respect. And I think we Turkish writers have a lot to learn from him. Not only the stories he wrote, but how he wrote, the language he used was, was very unique, very important. Um, there's a slight misunderstanding about my beginning. I actually started publishing books much before. Um, to this day, it has been now 15 books. Ten of them are novels. And I was very young, actually, when I first published my short stories, which I don't like much, and that's why I don't like to talk about much about them, because I find it very amateurish. But my first novel, I, uh, I, uh, I was 23 years old when it was published. So I'm not going to give you my age, but it's been a while. <laughs> um, I, I think, f for me, uh, one crucial thing is, when I came back from Spain to Turkey as a child, as a teenager, of course I hadn't forgotten my Turkish. How can I? But I realized while I was away from Turkey, the language had kept on moving. And so now there were new jokes, new slang, argo, you know, and I could not understand them. Just a little gap between me and my peers. And that little gap made me stop. And I had to start studying Turkish. This was a big difference for me, because people my age at the time, 15-year-old high school students, unless you had to take a Turkish exam at school, why would you need to study Turkish? You know what I mean? You, you take it for granted, you put it in your pocket, it's your mother tongue. I never took it for granted because of that experience, that nomadic experience. So what I'm trying to say is, I have been studying Turkish all throughout my life, studying Ottoman words. Some of you might be familiar with my work in Turkish. I use lots of old Ottoman words and new words because I love words. And to me, it's very sad that those nuances have been lost. In Turkish, I can say yellow, I can say red. I can't say the shades in between because they used to come from Persian and we have Turkified our language and hundreds of words have been taken. So I've been very critical of that because I want those words back, I want those nuances. These were very new things because in Turkey in general, if you're a liberal, if you're a feminist, you're not supposed to care for old words. Only conservative people care for old words. I never liked those dualities, always trying to transcend. So all I can say is, for me, stories are very important. Silences are very important. I want to give more voice to silences and people who have been silenced. That's why in my work, minorities are very important. But also, in addition to stories and silences, I think language is a, is a big passion for me. Uh, and this is this is this is my journey. About the the other question, uh, I, I have no answer to that. Of course, I only do my work. Yeah, yeah. about Nobel or, or or literary prizes. We we write because we don't know how how else to live as writers. To me, this is like breathing. You know, this this is how I connect with with life. I think we have time for two more questions. Please be brief and please introduce yourself. There's a question in the middle there. And then we have laid in front uh, for the last question. Thank you very much for this beautiful talk. I'm Zara, one of those <laughs> nasty Bulgarians that you learned about in your <laughs> childhood. Um, my question, which I hope will be a bit more unassuming, has to do with the vote of the Turkish diaspora in the Western world, because it seemed very counterintuitive that a lot of those people which had grown up in liberal societies and had experience with those institutions still supported some of the measures in the referendum that mm -hmm. undermined democracy. Mm -hmm. So do you have um, any explanation of why that counterintuitive result came to be? Was it anxiety or isolation um, and the failure to integrate in your um, respective community? Thank you. Um, Thank you. I, I, I totally understand uh, your question and, and I appreciate it. Uh, of course, there are differences as well, because I, I don't want to generalize. 
for instance, with regards to the referendum results, in Germany, around 68% of those Turks who, who voted, not everyone voted, it wasn't that high, um, but 68% voted yes in the referendum pro Erdogan. In Holland, it was quite high as well, close to 70%. In England, it was the opposite. Uh, around 80% said no. Um, so it also depends on countries, and maybe we have to talk, why is it like that? How come in different countries, different communities, immigrant communities act differently? Um, of course, in my opinion, you might disagree, but I think that distinction between left right versus right doesn't hold anymore. Something new is happening in the world. L new dualities are emerging, and one of those new dualities is the duality between countryside and, and urban. Um, it, it makes a big difference where the families are originally coming from, mostly from the countryside, not only in Turkey, in Austria as well, for instance, mostly voted um, in, in more non-democratic ways, and the cities voted for globalization and liberal values. So that urban liberal, uh, sorry, urban countryside divide is an interesting divide that, in my opinion, we need to take into consideration. But coming back to immigrant communities, it is very ironic, it's very paradoxical, but very true. Sometimes immigrant communities outside the homeland that they have left behind decades ago, those immigrant communities can become more nationalistic, more religious, more inward-looking, and, and I dare say more sexist and patriarchal even than the country they have left behind. Sometimes they can become more frozen in time. And this has to do not only with to do with the dynamics about that immigrant community, but also their relationship with the host country. When there are big tensions with the host country, or when people feel like they are being looked down upon, then their identity becomes the only thing they, they stick to. And they want a strong man who defends their values. What we need to be careful about is, I think we are all far too globalized, whether we like it or not. And not only that, that means extremists are also globalized and populists are also interconnected. We have seen in the recent row with Turkey and the Netherlands, so the AKP's Turkish nationalistic rhetoric yeah, uh, was directly done to get more votes from, from Turkish people living in the Netherlands, but it also helped the populist parties of Heert Wilders in the Netherlands, and they kept breeding each other. They, they kept benefiting from that kind of duality. No, I speak louder, no, I speak louder. And then when the elections were over, everything is over. So it is, it's like a game. We need to be um, careful about these things. For me, it's very important that we interact with immigrant communities, and especially with the youth, and especially with the women, because it just breaks my heart that particularly there are so many women of a certain age who can't speak the language of the countries where they have been living in for a long time. They can't break away. Uh, it's very important that we don't isolate, ghettoize. Ghettos are very, very dangerous. And so in that regard, there are differences among European countries, among the host countries' approaches as well. It makes it things much easier when there's a proper integration and interaction in, the, in that host country. We have the last question in the front there. Yeah, my name is Asma. I was just wondering, uh, much of the talk that you gave reminded me a lot about Pakistan, mm. um, minus the historical context. But uh, what do you think middle-class Muslim world can do? Yeah. I mean, Vali Nasser talked about it years ago, there'll be more economics than evangelism. Where do you think things have gone wrong? Yeah, you're so right. And it's a question we need to ask ourselves, don't we? And Pakistan and Turkey, huge similarities, lots of concerns in common. I'm very much aware of that. What worries me immensely is more and more people in countries such as ours have begun to say, you know what, democracy maybe doesn't suit us anyhow. Historically, culturally, it is a Western invention. Maybe we need our own model. And that model maybe is more strong leader, technocrats, bureaucrats, dedicated. Let's look at the Singapore model. Why can't we have different models? People are losing faith in democracy, and young people are being told 
that, you know what, the, the, the Western model works only for them. Of course, the failure of the Arab Spring also contributed to the disappointment because at the beginning there was so much optimism and then the number of people who are saying democracy probably is not going to work for, for the Middle East. Maybe we, we're going to have to make a choice between stability and democracy and let's choose stability over democracy. I cannot tell you how many Western intellectuals I've heard who are speaking in this way. They're saying it won't work in the Middle East, it's too much, so let's choose stability. I'm very worried about this tendency. We have to defend pluralistic democracy no matter what. We don't have to be stuck between horrible options that are not options such as military dictatorships and civilian authoritarianism. No, we have a right to ask for democracy, yeah? no matter where we come from in the world. Uh, thank you very much for uh, this talk. Oh, yeah. thank you so much. Thank you so much, um, everyone, for coming. Uh, I'm Ingvil. I work here at the Nobel Peace Center, and it's my... Uh, privilege and my pleasure to thank you, uh, Elif Shafak, for joining us this evening. I'm afraid I don't have any literature prize to give out to you, but uh, you will get uh, the Nobel Medal in chocolate. Oh, that's wonderful. So <laughs> that's a good substitute. And thank you, Morten, for keeping uh, the conversation on track. So you will have the chocolates as well. Thank, thank you. you. And thank you to the Oslo Freedom Forum for uh, cooperating on this event. <laughs> um, well, the Oslo Freedom Forum continues uh, tomorrow uh, with uh, Elif uh, going on stage uh, tomorrow. Uh, so some of you might uh, have the chance to hear her again. Uh, on this stage, we're back on June the 8th with an interesting panel on nuclear security. So uh, make sure to follow us on, on Facebook and see uh, our program uh, there, because we have a lot of things going on. And uh, one of the things we like the most is to present important, strong voices like Elif's to our public. So thank you, Elif, and thank you all for coming and uh, for your contributions tonight. And enjoy the rest of uh, the Oslo night. Thank you.